the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer in the maple auto mall near rutherford at highway 400 luxury is closer than you think round one on round one this morning tim hudak is here former leader of ontario's conservatives he's at the ontario real estate association laura babcock from power group communications mark warner international trade lawyer good morning to y'all nice to have you let's actually start with this um dilemma i guess we could say it's certainly a compelling debatable there's a mississauga man who's charged with providing a toxic chemical that can be used in treating meat but it seems that he's been mostly providing it allegedly uh to aid people in killing themselves mark warner i don't know if you want to offer some legal analysis aside from just having an opinion on this um i would imagine that the prosecutors must have some evidence that he's not just innocently serving people who like to treat their own meat I, I would guess so. I mean, I, I, you'd hope so. Um, I think they would probably be looking at, um, at the patterns and what happened, and maybe they've got some some t- tapes. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I you know, I, I just don't know. So I just tend to wait and see what we what we hear from that. I mean, it's the interest, the part of the story that interests me, John, is I think we do have to get it together in Canada about what we think about suicide. You know, we've got this assisted suicide law that we're so proud of, and then we've got. You know, the other story that came out a couple of weeks ago, I think, was we're, we're chaining down uh, prisoners in jail who ask for uh, assisted suicide. So we're kind of, we got to figure it out. Is it, are we, you know, how do we feel about this suicide? It's, uh, this is, I think, uh, part of what comes with that whole sort of unserious discussion we had about it. And, and uh, that's how I see it. I see this as all one big same issue. Of a, of, a, of a sort of degradation of respect for human life. Laura Babcock, I don't entirely disagree with what Mark was just saying, but at least with assisted, you know, medical assistance in dying, you have to go through a procedure and, you know, get the approval of two doctors. This is just, you know, mail away for poison. Yeah, obviously this person shouldn't be doing this and the uh, came as a result of a death, right? That's how they, this whole thing started. So, no, you shouldn't be sending people ways that they can kill themselves. We have medically assisted suicide. But I have to say, to, to Mark's point, it's not as it seems. I had a family member who was trying to opt for that uh, and wasn't able to get it because they had just had some other uh, mental illness issues, right? And so if you've got mental illness, at least in our case, then you're not able to get this assisted suicide and the person was in great distress uh, and then tried to opt for their take their own life. So, I mean, we haven't got a really clear understanding of when does a person have a will to take their life to, if they have other things like cancer, is that enough? Uh, if they have a you know, if they're not going to live for very long, like we really don't have a clear understanding in this country, I don't think. Uh, and but certainly in this case, it seems clear that this individual was assisting people in dying without even uh, any kind of intervention or any attempts of understanding their mental state. Well, and Tim Hudak, we very much are in a certain gray zone with this individual, as Mark and Laura have pointed out. But I'm remembering people thought that Dr. Kevorkian was fighting the good fight about people being able to end life on their own terms. And then I watched a documentary about him. He was a nutcase. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I'm <laughs> glad that you let, let me know that. I'll have to look that, uh, look that up. Um, well, this guy doesn't strike me as what we think of Kevorkian as any kind of uh, champion. Uh, I, I, it is despicable, right, that somebody would make money uh, in uh, in this way, randomly shipping out packets of, uh, of poison. you got to think that there's some paper trail 
in order to meet these individuals and figure out that uh, they needed this product. So the, hopefully they'll they'll dust something off, John. I, I just think this is sort of this is very despicable behavior as an individual. So we were talking with um, a policy analyst just a short while ago on the show about the fact that it appears the federal workers have reached a deal with the government, 12.6% over four years. Uh, Laura Babcock, I'll start with you. I mean, first of all, perhaps you can offer whatever analysis you want to on whether or not the government, you know, caved in and gave too much, but also whether or not is this is going to lay the groundwork for everybody else who's in a labor negotiation. Well, I don't think the government caved in and gave too much. I mean, this is not the 13.5 over three years. It's 12-something over four. And, and it came, they came up from the nine, and the other and the union came down. This is the middle ground that I think most Canadians were hoping for in this large labor strike. Uh, really, they caught them up with inflation, right? So they, they're sort of caught up. Most of Canada feel like they've lost over the last few years in the private sector, where there are some high-in-demand jobs. Workers are getting paid well. Uh, it's in some ways a workers' market. But for many people, they're, they're not seeing that they're catching up with their grocery bills and their standard of living. So I expect there's going to be more, um, if not strike action, more requests to catch up to inflation. But I don't think this means that there was a, a huge victory for the unions or big deals are coming going forward. I think it's just a matter of catching up. Okay, Mark Warner, your thoughts? You've worked in government. I don't know if you ever did labor negotiations, but you certainly did acquisitions and other things. Uh, no, I didn't do labor negotiations, I, but I did deal with uh, labor freezes and threatened job actions because I did manage a branch of unionized lawyers, <laughs> which is a, is, a, is a whole new experience for me. Um, look, the reality is we have experience with this. There's a lot of people have forgotten uh, because it was mostly in the 70s and the 80s when we were growing up. A lot of us were anyway. Um, and we do know that, in fact, that what happens with inflation is you get to these spirals and people copy it through the system. And the only way to choke that off, because you give these guys 13% or whatever, 12 point whatever now, um, the next person comes up and they want some more, and the next one comes up. And, and, and the thing about what makes public sector concessions like this so pernicious is they have a degree of power, of market power, if you like, because they've got people who want public services. And so once the government caves, it sort of creates a spiral that people will copy it. Other branches of the government, because this is not the government-wide initiative, right? Other branches of government will ask that may have less uh, case for this, right? The less, uh, these, these, some of the evidence was that these particular workers affected were more worthy of it than some others. But once you go down this, this, this uh, create this, uh, this uh, precedent, it will be followed. And we know from experience that that leads to more inflation demands. Okay. Well, Tim Hudak, I guess it's kind of like the auto sector where they talk about pattern uh, bargaining, where you reach one settlement at Ford and then everybody at Chrysler wants the same thing. Do you see that happening? And not the extent I, I expected, John. Trudeau coming in at 12 and a half was actually lower than I thought he would with the federal civil servants. Um, what, what gets me going the most, Joe, though, John, is, is the growth in the size of the federal government. It is up 31% over the last seven years. To me, that, that's incredibly. There's been more things that the government oversees and contracts out. You think with technology that they could actually reduce their footprint uh, all in all. So that the fact that they, they gave a little, thankfully it was not in the collective agreement, but they did give a little management rights around remote work. And then when you get this kind of raise and there's no trade-off in reducing the size and scope of the civil service, that's the bigger sin in my mind. 
Let's talk about um, an idea that they have floated in Montreal where the size and weight of your car will determine what kind of a fine you pay if you are in violation and also parking fees. I pay a parking fee in order to park in front of my own house. Um, let me start with Mark Warner on this one. I guess it's a bit like in some jurisdictions in Europe, depending on the value of your car, if you're caught speeding, you pay a much higher penalty. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I don't love this sort of stuff, John, because, you know, I, I think about this. Sometimes we see these demands in, 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 uh, in other areas like airlines where they say that fat people should pay more, uh, you know, for their tickets uh, because of the energy that's consumed or for the amount of luggage that you're connect that you're traveling with. And so um, I, I kind of just don't uh, approach it this way. I think that uh, there, the way of getting people to do to change their behavior in a way, I think they're, they're, you've got to sort of make the case for electric vehicles, make the case for your know, sort of idea of environmental parking or whatever um, in a way that's fair. But um, no, I don't like the precedent this sets as a fat person for the people who are coming for me on airlines. It'd be next. Okay, Tim Hudak, uh, parking fees based on the size of your car. I don't know that necessarily somebody's going to stop wanting a pickup truck just because it's going to cost them a little bit more to park it. Now, I don't know if this is a thinly veiled revenue grab, you know, gussied up as an environmental initiative or an attempt to save the planet. I don't think either are actually going to work. They've got to leave the soccer moms alone, right? This is part of some politicians wanting to lecture us about the kind of cars that we drive. You're trying to get the kids around to hockey or soccer. You've got to pay a higher fee for that. And look, when you, when you buy a large car, you're paying more off the top. There's the HST on the purchase. You pay more for gas for driving that around the gas tank likely more insurance. You do pay more for really having a larger car and for the the service of parking, John, to ding them on top of that. Uh, I don't like it at all. Plus, we've got a highly progressive tax system where they nail the wealthy enough in Quebec and Ontario. Leave the soccer moms alone. Okay, last word on this one would be Laura. And it should be noted, Montreal has a very meddlesome government. They have effectively reconfigured the downtown to make it the enemy of motor vehicles. So I guess this is just the latest step. <laughs> well, I don't believe in the war on the car. I believe in more walkable, livable cities. And as a soccer mom, I like this. I like this. I like this because I think it's where we're going forward. We don't need the huge vehicles that we use. We really, we really don't. I get my kids around just fine in a sedan, and I'm hoping someday to not even have a car parked in the driveway because I don't. They're expensive, and there's so many alternatives now. So I think this is the way of the future. I think it's smart, and they take up more room in parking spaces and in you know other kind of open lots where there aren't necessarily designated lines. They're bigger vehicles. So charge them more. What do you folks make of the idea, and Dr. Mitch was backing this up on White Coat Wednesday at 6.50 this morning, loneliness is being called the new silent killer. They say being lonely is as deadly as smoking. Uh, Tim Hudak, not surprising. I know. I think your psychological disposition and social isolation can be just as much a threat as, you know, too much butter. Yeah, I got to think so. I mean, the, the closest comparison you had was, was during during COVID when we had the long and painful lockdowns. And I found that painful if not to see people, interact with people, talk to strangers, whatever I could do. And I at least had my, my wife and, and, and two daughters to keep me company. I, I could not imagine the kind of the pain and emptiness you feel if you go through that on a daily basis. It would eat you out inside, no doubt. Uh, Mark Warner, your thoughts? 
I think it, I think it's real. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, what you do with this kind of knowledge, though. I mean, do we have a government program to to encourage people to have friends? We're going to have a pay some money out to send people a friend if you mail into a certain address. Like, I, I, I just don't know what you, I, I, this doesn't strike me as particularly novel or interesting or insightful. But yes, so thank you for documenting it. Now tell me what you want to do with it. Not, not clear to me. OK, but Laura Babcock, then we do have interesting initiatives. I forget where this was launched, but the idea of a chatty cashier at a supermarket, you could get into a certain line and have a conversation. And some people said it might make might be the highlight of somebody's day. Yeah, don't even get me started at those um, where you have to do all your own checkout stuff. You can't even talk to the cashier. I hate that. Um, but here, listen, I loved the way that they said this in the research, that it's like an instinct for food or for a drink. You're, when you're hungry or thirsty, it's something a brain is signaling to say, I'm not getting enough to survive. I'm not getting enough social engagement to survive. And the advent of social media and being all the tw twice as many people are living on their own now, right? So we as a society are growing apart and it's dangerous and it's unhealthy. And the pandemic just reinforced for us how dangerous that can be. So we need to get back to getting back together, whatever that looks like. Thank you all. Good to have you this morning. Laura Babcock, Tim Hudak, and Mark Warner. I'm thinking about my own chatty cashier at uh, the Loblaws that I go to. Every once in a while, I get this guy. And he'll, and something will be on the, um, whatever the heck, the, the conveyor belt. And he picks it up and he says, what are you going to do with this? It's like, well, I'm... Ugh. All right, fine. I will tell you what I'm planning on doing with this. Coming up in the next half hour, a little bit more about this issue, uh, because if you weren't with us when we talked to Dr. Mitch, you probably want to know more. Hey, loneliness? And Laura's right. More people live alone now than at any other time in history. So loneliness, very much a factor. Plus, a great story from Richard Krauss. Last night, he was on with Jim Richards to talk about Gordon Lightfoot. And he told a very funny story about being at a reception with Gordon Lightfoot and something that somebody asked. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.